0: Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show. And today, (laughs) today, you guessed it, it's a good day. But today is not only a good day, it's an awesome day. It's a phenomenal day. It's going to be an inspiring day for you. I promise you, because today I have someone with me. And I'm going to share this individual with you who who I've learned from, who's not only been a friend, but a mentor to me. From the beginning of my professional career, see, as many of you know, I started off my career when I was 23 years old, being asked to oversee and create the executive leadership development program for the U.S. Department of the Interior. And, so, and from there, I had the opportunity to bring in speakers. And one of those speakers I brought in, his name was Clifton L. Toliver. And it, the man was amazing. He, he blew the minds of not only me, but every executive in that room. See, Clifton is simply a rock star. He has his own leadership development business, which he has been running for years. He is also the CEO and president of his own coffee business, where he imports coffee beans directly from Africa to the US to serve our nation's public. He's a Pulitzer Prize nominee. Yes, he's an international lecturer and speaker. He is the author of multiple best selling books, two of which means so much to me one being the eight habits of the heart and one of my personal favorite books who owns the ice house he is simply amazing in today's conversation he's going to share with you how you can strategically intentionally serve others while also ensuring that you reach your personal goals he's going to share why the nice guy doesn't have to finish last He's going to share all of the information that he shares with government agencies, with nonprofit organizations, with private sector leaders to help them think entrepreneurially so they can, again, achieve the outcomes they're looking to achieve. Look, I could spend the next 45, 35, 55 minutes talking to you about how great he is, but I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because when you listen to this episode, you're going to know it for yourself. So, with no further ado, my good friend and mentor, Clifton L. Tolbert. Hello everyone, this is Alex Trumbull from the Alex Trumble Show, and I, I'm so happy to have another good friend with us today. I, Clifton, how are you doing today, kind sir?
1: I am doing well. The weather is uh, a bit of a challenge here in Oklahoma. But then again, as you once said, challenges provide opportunity and uh, it'll be an opportunity for someone to clean my driveway, someone to uncover my car (laughs) and and someone to keep me from slipping and falling. Uh, So, (laughs) so
0: so I I, I love this. I love that. Look, everyone, again, these interviews are completely just off the top. And because you brought that up, honestly, I was literally just speaking to my wife. About um, about challenges, and she asked me, you know, what drives me? And it's a great question. I I'm always being fairly driven, and um, I try. I love learning. I, I really have always really loved learning new things. And and I was like, well, you know, and the the best way for me to learn is to do by throwing myself into something very very difficult. I always try new and hard things because it almost. It forces me to learn. You know, you can pick up a book, and that's kind of almost passive, or watch a presentation. But when you're actually doing something, it forces you to learn. And and what we what we arrived at was, you know, the reason why most people don't do that is possible because they're they're concerned with the uncomfort and the discomfort that comes from doing something difficult and hard, but. Those are opportunities to learn. What would you share with those individuals who, who are concerned with the, the, who want something greater for themselves, but are, but are worried about the discomfort and the uncomfort that comes along with doing something difficult?
1: Well, you know, you've hit upon a very important subject matter. Uh, one of the things about life is this, challenges will come and how do we position ourselves in order to deal with the challenge as an opportunity. Now we say it maybe rather tritely, discover the opportunity in the challenge, but for the most part, within every challenge, therein lies an opportunity. I tell my young son, who's an entrepreneur in LA, never run from the problem, son, run to the wind. As that is the only way you will learn succinctly what you need to know how to take care of your business and how to be prepared for the next challenge that will come along. Because if you handle challenge number one and challenge number two shows up, you can talk to yourself. And that's a very important part of self-sustaining. Talk to yourself, remind yourself of challenge number one, remind yourself of your fear, remind yourself that you had the courage to go through it, remind yourself of what you accomplished and say, if I did it once, guess what, I can do it again.
0: Oh, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm love, you know, um, so she's listening to, um, she's listening to David Goggin's book. I believe it's David Goggin, the guy who's a ridiculous, like he was a military dude, got out of the military and just big all these, he's very physical world record. And he does these ultra marathons where you, where you run a hundred miles within 24 hours. And, and I was telling her about how, you know, if you think about a hundred miles, like that's really difficult, but I can promise you in the beginning, probably five, five miles was hard for him. It was difficult, but then he did that so many times and five miles became easy. And then, you know, it was 10 miles and, and 10 miles is hard, but then at, over time, then 10 miles became easy and he slowly built his way up to a hundred miles. But the, the, the point we were talking when I was telling you is that this pain and this discomfort is, is temporary. Like all yeah. these things are temporary, right? Well, one of the things you said that oftentimes
1: we don't realize, you know, life is really not running fast as much as it uh, is taking, taking the opportunity to, to advance yourself within the reality of where you are. It, it's okay to start slowly and build up and keep building up yeah, and keep yeah. achieving and continue to achieve. You know, I I look at Nelson Mandela. You know, for 27 years, he was building up toward that incredible moment that he wasn't sure it was going to come. And that's the neat thing about the human spirit. Even if you do not know what's around the corner, you do have the capability and the capacity to deal with the moment. And that's what really truly matters when we deal with the moment. Because the moment, if dealt with properly, Will propel us to the next level with a mindset that will say, "Yes, I can."
0: Well, look again. I'm with you. I I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and and what I always tell people is to is to don't worry about you know necessarily right what's going to happen next year, the year before. Is am I better today than i was yesterday did, did i make progress did i make movement but those things can feel small and some people feel like am i am i even making progress if i yeah I'm, I'm better today than i was yesterday but but my friend over there or this person over there they're doing great things how do you keep yourself from thinking that things are too small that your progress is too small
1: well, one of the things you said is, is that I think what, regardless of the age or position that one is in, oftentimes we look outside of our race, the race that we're running, and we're watching on either side of us, but that's not the way to keep your eyes on the prize. I mean, if you keep your eyes on your prize, then it doesn't matter what happens if it's small or big you realize that it is part of the puzzle that will eventually create that entire picture that you've been wanting to see. You know, so don't, uh, I would say, don't cheat yourself out of embracing small things. Because, you know, I sometimes when when I'm giving out a workshop and I'm talking to a group of leaders, I have several plastic uh, Ziploc bags filled with a little bit of nuts and bolts. And I just lay them all over the table. And, and I, so I said, okay, let's, let's discuss this. Yeah. Are these things important? They're little, you can barely see them. Are they oh, important? I love it. And, and then as we began to talk about it, everybody has an opinion. You yeah. know, uh, maybe, yeah, not I, I said, well, let me tell you where they came from. And then let me ask you the question. These nuts and bolts that. are from the, from the wing of a 747. Now tell me if they're important. You don't want that plane to leave the ground without those nuts and bolts properly in place. And they are all incredibly small. Our lives are built by those everyday things that that happen to us, those everyday things that we embrace, those everyday things that define who we can become.
0: That, that, that was that i one I love the imagery um and two that it makes so much sense and you know I, so i I just, I just literally today I just finished reading Ursula Burns's book um uh where you are is not who you are uh, she was the first african-american uh, woman uh, CEO of a fortune 500 company and you know, she has this wonderful, phenomenal story that she tells throughout this book that I encourage everyone to read. Um, and it gets to a point in her career after she'd had dinner and lunch with the Clintons and she'd been to the big, big board meetings and, you know, been to the White House and she did all these great things. And then she says, oh, the, um, and then to end she says that she was given an opportunity to run her own branch of, uh, of Xerox in London, and she says, "Well, you know, as a 36 year old black woman, it, this was going to be a challenge or a possible challenge for me." And I was like, "Hold up, 36? So you done all this stuff before 36? What have I done with my life?" <laughs> so isn't it hard sometimes to to not compare when you when you see these these glowing. As a society, those are the people we put on the pedestals that were always tweeting and, 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 and interviews and top this of that. Like, how do you keep your mind focused when you all you see throughout our society is this person did this by this age and you haven't got there yet?
1: You know that, that is a good question, a very good question. But that question probably reflects life more closely than anything else does, because very seldom. Uh, Does the nation start, get set, ready, go, and the whole nation takes off? Uh, Not even that in a family. Get ready, get set, get go. Uh, Every family member does not take off at the same level, at the same place. But the fact of it is, is that we have the opportunity to move and to move forward. But what has to happen within the context of our lives to run into people that remind us, and that's why people are so important, community will always be what I call the sustaining part of individual success. Because within the context of community, there should always be that one person to say, but you did good. You really did good. There should always be that one person to say, your tomorrow is coming. You're not gonna accomplish everything that you want today. That other person may have had certain circumstances in his or her life that allow them to do so. And, and, and you may have had some circumstances that were not necessarily propelling you forward, they may have held you back, but it didn't kept, keep you in a place that you could not move forward. So you don't want to look at another person to gauge your own movement. You look at that other person and say, if that human being can, so can I. You look at it from the bigger picture. If human beings are moving, I'm a human, I can move as well. Maybe not as quickly as they can, but I can move.
0: I um, oh shoot. You know, it's actually funny. My wife and I did this uh, this past year. We went we took our first vacation. Actually, we realized we had just we had never taken a vacation together. We've been together for 15 years. That was over three days. So we took a a vacation to um, uh, Colorado. And, and we were in Colorado, we drove over to um, Utah and did Lands and we did Arches National Park. It was it was awesome. And I, I found it very interesting because there was this there was this hike that we wanted to go on. And we got there and it was it was really cool. But there was this almost this rock scramble going up uh, up the side of a mountain, but it was super thin, super thin. And. We were there along with along with this other couple who ended up just being next to us, and they were like literally um, sixty plus years old. Um, they were they were, I think one of them was almost seventy, and they had just been hiking just like us. And we we were all sitting there saying, you know, can we do this? Is is this is this too dangerous for us to to try this this very thin rock scramble? Because if you fall, it's gonna be a bad day for everyone. Um, and so eventually we saw some people just literally walk past us, get on the rock scramble, walk up, no problems. Oh, okay. So it's, it's, it's doable. So then me and my wife tried it and, and we got up and we weren't as comfortable as the pair before us, but we kind of like on all fours scrambled up the, the, the rock scramble and we made it up. It was like, awesome. Okay, we made it. And then that older couple, they got on the rock scramble and they like, Honestly, the, the man was crawling up the rock scramble to make sure he just didn't fall. And you saw his knees getting scratched and blood. And but they kept pushing and they made it to the top. And what I realized is that all of us got there using different strategies. All of us got there with different speeds. Some of us had to literally crawl on the ground with blood on our knees but we still made it there. And so, like you said, maybe not the right same speed, but if we push ourselves to do something, we can get it done. Yeah, and, and history gives us that. You know,
1: I gave a lecture uh, at Arkansas State, Univ- uh, State University on the 1st of February. And I said, uh, it's important. I said, history has great lessons. The challenge is we've refused to go to class. I I say that's the real challenge, history is no problem because history gives us the way things were, and leaves us with the possibilities of the way things can be, looking at history. But we have to go to class. And and I think what class does, it gives us the ability to learn about ourselves, to learn about others, and and to find our place and our space in this human context. Because sometimes we become so enamored with my house, my space, my place, that we forget, you know, that we are part of a much bigger picture. And uh, and, and, and leadership becomes a very important part to understand that is not just about Clifton or, or Mr. Trimble, it's, it's about the world in which we live and how do we fashion ourselves in a way that we can be the giver of life. And, and, and I just was talking to someone this morning about Nelson Mandela. I never had the opportunity to meet him But the State Department sent him a copy of my very first book at his request. (laughs) And uh, I never knew if he got the book or not. But one of the attorneys in Pretoria came to Tulsa, where I live, and she had dinner at our house along with other people. She never spoke to me when she first walked in. She just said, Mr. Talbot, we knew of your work in Pretoria. The president keeps the little book on his desk. (laughs) I mean, that was the great joy of my life, the little book, because I never thought it would become a major accomplishment. Because the reason I did it was not to become a major accomplishment. It was to say thank you for ordinary people in the Mississippi Delta who had done extraordinary things for my life that had caused me to be where I was that day. And I wanted to say thank you. So when we look at our lives from the perspective of how we can reach out, reach in, reach around, reach across, and bring others into and walk into others, then we have a better sense of what this human journey is all about. You know, it, it, it is about laughter. It is about crying. It is about sadness, but it is about joy as well. And in community, that's where those things live.
0: Oh, Goodness gracious. OK, we're going to change We're, we're, we're going to change direction soon. I know we jumped in this and we just, just start running and racing on this podcast today. Uh, but I, I just want to really quickly hit on, you know, when you talk about history and, and and people don't do their homework. You know, in, in my talks, I love when I challenge the audience. Look, I promise you, all of you here listening today, all of you who are at those sessions, you've been through something difficult. You've been through some, like, oh, my God, I'm not sure if I can make it. Is this going to ruin me? I, who do I need to talk to? I need some counseling. We've all been through horrible, horrible times in our life that we, that we just felt we weren't sure we we're going to get through it. And you know what? If you're listening to this today, you got through it. So that's, for me, this is not about some touchy-feely, oh, motivation stuff. This is, this is evidence. We have evidence that you had a challenging time and you made it through. You're still here today kicking if you're listening to this. And so like I'm I'm loving everything you're, you're sharing. And, and when you talk about your book, I wanted to let everyone know if you are watching this on YouTube, by the way, you actually see the bookshelf behind me. Your book, I'm not Nelson Nelson Mandela, but your book is one of the ones I always, always recommend to people. It's like right here behind me. Um, who owns the ice house? I I absolutely love that book. And actually, if you don't mind, would you tell a little about that book really quickly?
1: Yeah, very quickly. And it's hard to do it quickly because it's such an important part of my life. But what's amazing about it is that the story of a black man from the early part of the 20th century can touch the world. And and, and that speaks to humanity to humanity. The Ice House was owned by my great uncle in Glen Allen, Mississippi. It was the only ice house, and that is the significance of the story, in that in the Mississippi Delta, when it get hot, you got to have ice. So if you're white, you need ice. If you're Chinese, you need ice. If you're Jewish, you need ice. If you're Hispanic, you need ice. If you're black or white, you need ice. And there was only one place to get it. And in a very, very, very segregated world, this was the only integrated business that everyone had to shop there. And at 13, I became my great aunt's wingman. I mean, I learned from him how to run a business, but more importantly, I learned what was expected of me as a participant in that process. And that's the great lesson. I learned that if he said, be there at 8 a.m., he did not mean 8.15. He meant 8 a.m. or 7.50. Mm-hmm. That's what he really meant. And, and I learned that. And and, and uh, I, I remember the set, like you said, there was bad day. He was black, so he couldn't even go to the bank through the front door to make his deposits. He had to go through the back door. So I said to myself, One day I'm going to own a bank. Several years ago, my wife and I became owners of a noble bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma, one of the owners. And we sold the bank in 2008. But while we were the part of the ownership group, I said to my uncle, who's been deceased for years and years now, I said, Uncle Cleve, your boy has the keys to the front door. But what I learned. From him through who owns the ice house, there is a front door that you can enter. You may not have it at the moment, but it's there. Never let another person's challenges dictate your dreams and your aspirations. Keep those things in front of you, driving you, pulling you forward, pulling you along to the future. And that's what who owns the ice house is all about. It's about the entrepreneurial mindset. Now, Uncle Cleve did not know the word entrepreneur because that was not, that's a French derivative, and they didn't speak French in the Mississippi Delta. He called it simply gumption. That was his whole life was built around. Boy, if you got gumption, you can make it. Gumption would get you where you need to go.
0: Yeah.
1: The entrepreneurial spirit today was gumption then.
0: Well, I'd love to take us in a, now. A different track now because it talks about your, your uncle. So the reality is, is that there are really, really smart people all across this country, all across this world. Um, and I'm quite sure that you, you would agree. There's people who are probably smarter than you um, in the areas that you do work, but you have been successful. And so What I'd like to dive into, just like your uncle, he was super successful. What I'd like to dive into is where is that that line between just literally being good at what you do and being successful? Like, How did you go about standing out from the rest of your peers so that you can be in the places and the spaces that you are and be able to teach and, and, and guide the individuals that you have over all these years? You know, and, and, and thanks for alluding to that. I, I
1: think it has to be that my life focus has not been on me. It has been on those people who came before me, the elders who were in my life. My first book was not written to become a bestseller or a, national, or a major motion picture. I was a soldier during the ending days of the Vietnam War. Most of my friends were dying. And I assumed that I would get orders and would be dead along with them. So I started writing a book to say thank you for every single thing they had done. And and I I think that becomes part of the process. It's it's not just about me. It's about how can I be like them? And how can I move that uh, unself? You know, the currency of community is unselfishness. If unselfishness is not there, then community does not exist. It simply is an imagination. It's, it's, it's a mirage. But if unselfishness is there, then it does. It does exist. And for me, that is what moves your head, is the idea that it's about others. I want everybody to be successful. I, I, I'm happy. I'm, yes, I want to be successful so that I can help others be successful. But I want to live my life in such a way that the unselfishness dictates how I go about making that
0: happen. But does that make sense to you? It, 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 it does. But to, to, to bring up a famous quote, don't nice guys finish last? Thank you for tuning in to The Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a manager in the federal government, do you have Feds Protection Professional Liability Insurance? Because if you don't, you need to get it. Having a Feds policy means that you will be protected against any professional capacity lawsuit, administrative action, or criminal investigation arising from actions taken in the scope of your employment. This insurance is a must-have for federal managers and starts at just $290 a year. Plus, your agency will reimburse you for half of this cost. To learn more, visit www.FedsProtection.com or call 866-955-3337 today. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been ensuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley, and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WAPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today.
1: And now back to the Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. course not they do not finish last i mean what are we talking about here do night nice there's a difference between nice and the ability to know right from wrong Mm -hmm. and the ability to be able to stand up for yourself there's nothing wrong with standing up for yourself if do nice guys finish last no reginald lewis said why should white boys have all the fun in the book that he wrote one of the first uh Wall Street black millionaires. And, and uh, it, it, it it amazes me because that's probably the question in his mind, do nice guys, what do I have to do in order to play the game the same way someone else is doing? Well, the question may be, they may be playing the game and may be winning, but we have no idea what they're doing under the table, around the table, in a room you've not been in. Mm-hmm,
0: so mm-hmm.
1: you can't always look at the end game as a determining factor of how a person got there. So I think a lot of nice guys have not only finished first, but they have been premier finishers in their life. There's no one nicer than Nelson Mandela. He did not finish last. Well taken. He did not finish last. Mary McLeod Bethune, this great black educator who walked from the Carolinas into Florida with maybe 35 cents in her pockets, but she came with a purpose and a vision a nice lady who finished and is still finishing first. So yes, you can be nice and you can finish at the top of your class.
0: Oh, I I, I love it. I love it. You know, um, I love that you bring up Mary Plow Bethune and, and Nelson Mandela, and you know, there's Carter G. Woodson, Frederick Douglass, all these great, these great leaders. Um, you know, actually I, I interviewed um uh, Zandua Mandela, uh, Nelson Mandela's grandson, um, during the first season of, of this show. And he also talked about consistently being focused on doing what's right for the greater good. And that ultimately is what drove him to be successful is being able to focus on others. Um, you know, there's a book, I think by Adam Grant. Yes. I used to talk about it a lot, actually, um, give and take. And, you know, he talked about the the difference between being others focused and being other ish focused, basically, like like you, you talk about, just because you're focused on helping others be successful, doesn't mean you can't also focus on yourself being successful. Sure. Yeah, there's not, it's not a, I don't got to make a decision.
1: <laughs> no, you 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 really have to focus on yourself. I mean, to, to today I'm sitting here talking with you at a time that I could be doing something else. So I'm actually focusing to some extent on myself, but I'm focusing from a perspective: What would I learn as I listen to you? What would happen in the universe as this conversation goes out? So, in, in other words, it's, it's almost like two tracks running side by side, self and others going together, uh, uh, reaching each other. A glass of water, should you need it, you know. Uh, it, it, it it's it's not a matter of having to look out just for yourself, because in that case, you may end up with great wealth, but most oftentimes, you do not end up with great community when you just focus on yourself.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
1: Well, you know, I'm sorry. sorry. No, I was going to say, focusing on yourself is a house that is never built. You're always doing something because you're never satisfied. But when you focus on others, that's a whole different perspective.
0: You know, that's, that's a great point. If you're consistently focused on yourself, that is there's probably something always more that you want, need get, to, right. to gain in order to be quote unquote happy. Um, but if you are focused on those around your community, yeah, you can, you can actually see the progress being made. Like That person smiling, that person having a place to stay, that person being able to get a loan from a bank, that person being able to have whatever policy helping, helping them. Like I, I, I I love the perspective. Um, And and as you go through the process of trying to help others and and, and better a community, um, the reality is there are individuals who are focused on themselves. And some of those individuals you may have to work with. So how do you navigate situations where you want to do what's best for the community? You really, truly do. but you have someone who only wants best for them. Like, how do you navigate those relationships? And You You
1: know, that's a great question, but it's
0: not a new question.
1: And it'd be a question that will be asked tomorrow as well. This would be my answer for today. I have to make a decision about Clifton, about the character of Clifton, and how I will lead my life within the context of work, within the context of home, within the context of play. I have to make that decision. And if I'm working with someone who is so self-motivated, and, but not self-motivated, but self-focused, that others and their goals do not matter, then I don't want to align myself as a buddy-buddy with that person, having to do what he or she demands so that I can stay within that clique Clickish relationship. What I want to do is to make sure that my work speaks for me, that I am being excellent in what I am doing, even though my boss or others working with me have chosen not to be, because I am defining myself within the sphere of my influence. And so that's my decision. I'm going to do the best that I can within the context of my own life, so that the greater good will be accomplished. The vision and the mission of the organization matters. So I wanna to drive toward that. And hopefully, and sometime it does happen, that a person who is self-centered will begin to see that and realize that one does not stay ahead just because you got ahead doing crazy things. But staying ahead when you do crazy things will eventually get to you and you will find out, I'm not where I thought I was, and other people will find out that they that you're not who they thought you were.
0: You know what's funny about that is that this is this is what I'm always teaching on in my talks and in my lectures, which is um, there is a there's a huge difference become between becoming successful and remaining successful. You you may be able to sneak into that leadership position. But if you don't got what it takes to remain there, you do undercut of snaky things, at some point, it's, it's going to come back. It's going to come back.
1: I mean, I mean, and that's why I said go to class. History says come to class. And history is a very good teacher of what happens when we circumvent truth, when we circumvent those types of qualities that are essential for long-term sustainability. When I talk with educators or with anyone in a leadership position, this is what I say. Never underestimate the power of your presence on the life of another person. So you look at positions as opportunity, not just to build your own fortune, but to help others to build themselves in such a way they can become contributors to society as well.
0: I'm, I'm really loving, I'm really loving our conversation today. Um, I, I, there, there are two things I want to throw by you. I know we need some time for these two, but the, the first one I'll prep you on the. I'd love to talk a little about Black Wall Street. I'll prep you on that one. Um, But the one I want to ask you really quickly, because you talked about mission and vision of the organization. So I watched the movie last night. I'm not going to say which movie, kind of want to spoil anyone if they haven't seen the movie yet, but I watched the movie and there was an individual who found us some information, was like, I got to do something. This is coming. This is really bad. It is going to hurt the organization. Um, And he told the right people and they didn't believe him. And then he went off and said, you know what? This is what's right. This is what's right. I'm going to go off. And he went off on his own to figure out the problem. People called him crazy. No one liked him. You know, Friends and colleagues thought that he was going off and only worried about himself. They stopped messing with him. They didn't like him. But like 20 years later, it all came to pass exactly what was shared, it came to pass. And if it wasn't for him doing the work that he needed to do, everything would have blown up. This is the movie. How how I'm translating this is there are times where we know that we need to do something and no one around us believes us that this is the right thing to do. This is important. This is critical. We got to do something. And people are calling you crazy. They don't think you don't know what you're doing. How do you remain solid? in those situations when the world is telling you that you're crazy, but you know something needs to change. You know you got to do something different. Well,
1: I I think it's amazing as a race of people, as a a group of people who had undergone 246 years of enslavement and servitude in our country, I, I, I think you look at our lives, you look at our history, and you will see proof support. You will see evidence, literal evidence of, of what happened when you move that mountain out of your way. you'll see you we have that that's, that's not a that's not an imagination uh, I mean that that's 1877 that's twelve years after the Thirteenth Amendment was signed that a town is born in Kansas City called Nicodemus because of the fortitude, the courage, the vision, the innovative mindset of a group of newly, well, relatively newly free enslaved to do these things. So the idea of being able to move forward in spite of, history gives us clear examples of that, even though the hurdles may be very big, but the hurdles weren't too big for 1887. When Benjamin Montgomery and his te- and Mr. Green, his cousin, created the town in Mount in Mississippi Delta called Mount Bayou that still exists today, so the idea of the possibilities exists. We have to look to the evidence, and the evidence is there. The evidence is in the stories. We know what we've come across, and we bring that into our present life. Our present life becomes better informed by the history. Of what is happening
0: but i i i promise you i promise you i'm i'm with you i'm with you and and i i'm 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 trying to channel the, the the individual listening to this right now and saying yes i know that in the past those things have happened I, I realize that but but for me right now i feel like i'm being made to feel like i'm stupid i feel like people are are are, are judging me and it's gonna impact my career I can, i know Something needs to change. I know that we got to do something different. I know I could be a leader in pushing for something different. But man, that's a, that's a lot of risk. I mean. Yeah, but that's the key thing you said.
1: Risks and rewards are almost one coin with two sides. And one does not move without the other. I, I don't know anyone that has been involved in great rewards have not also been the victim of challenges, not opportunities, but having found themselves on the opposite side of that. But yet those trials and tribulations became their triumphs because they went through that. Risk should not be the deterrent from our, well, you gave the example, going up the, when you were in uh, on vacation in Colorado, when these three or four different sets of people looking at the same goal, but they had different physical limitations of physical opportunities. There was something there that would dictate to them. Now, I know the goal is not going to change. That mountain is up there. It ain't going to change yeah. to satisfy me. But I don't have the same leg capacity that this person has. So I'm going to crawl up there. It may take me a little long to get there, but I'm going to get there because, as they say, keep your eyes on the prize. The prize dictates and helps you to determine the strategy and the tactics that you will use in order to get there. But if you take your eyes off the prize, then your mind focuses on the challenges that you face. The opportunities that, that are not there, the people that hate your guts—that's that, all. I mean, that becomes yes. the conversation. But uh, you don't run the ice house in Glen Allen, Mississippi, in the in the hard, heart and world of legal segregation, serving the whole community ice and taking money to the bank. If you're not having that full understanding that I can move beyond this, I can accomplish this. Why? Because you keep your eyes on the prize and keeping your eyes on the prize. Dictate the stat, the strategies and the tactics that you will use.
0: Look, th- thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank OK, look, if, if no one else, if, if you're not feeling it right now, you're not alive. I'm going to say I'm going to say that. Um, look, we're, 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 we're going to start winding down fairly soon, but I would be completely remiss if I did not use this opportunity with you to talk a little bit about um, Black Wall Street. Um, I, I know you know a thing or two. Uh, w- would you like to just give a, a real quick overview of what that is for people who've never even heard of it possibly? You know, Black Wall Street is to me a dream that
1: exploded into reality, a dream for over 246 years. I've often asked people, imagine what they were thinking imagine what they were thinking 246 years of enslavement and servitude and then in 12 years later within the period of reconstruction you are now representatives and senators and you're building colleges and universities i said so what were they thinking during the days of working the fields of the delta Tobacco in the Carolinas uh, and and all the things that were part of the economic success of our country, when they were promoting that, they were thinking, they were dreaming, they were preparing, and and, and they were passing that emotional torch of possibilities on to the next generation. So when the last bell of freedom rang in 1865 with the 13th Amendment, now all of the millions of Africans enslaved were now free. What did they do? That to me becomes, what did they do on that day? What did they do? They began to celebrate a world that they would create for their children. An unselfish motivation drove their actions in such a way that it was incredible. And it was from such a place that Black Wall Street would eventually find itself. Because Black Wall Street, uh, it, it happened in the territories initially. Uh, 1803, you had the Louisiana Purchase, and the Louisiana Purchase, uh, that was France, Napoleon sold it to our country. But most people forget that the reason Napoleon had to sell it to our country, they were running out of money. You know why they were running out of money? Because they were fighting the Haitian. And guess what you saw? That incredible black general had beaten Napoleon. That's the real thing. They needed the $15 million for that. Yeah. Okay. Now, this becomes important because 1832, Andrew Jackson invoked the removal act that removed all of the native people from the eastern side of the United States into what they would call God-forsaken land, which was what the Louisiana Purchase. But most people don't realize that with those native people, over thousands of them, there were 5,000 enslaved Africans as well that became part of the territory. In 1887, when the Dallas Commission was put in place, then the land was taken from the Indian nation and given to individual families. The freedmen, who were the blacks, who had been enslaved, some of them were kin to them by biological kin, some intermarried, some were simply slaves. They also became the the recipients of almost 3.5 million acres of land, some of which had oil on it. Now, in 1803, it was called God Forsaken. Nobody wanted it. No one knew that the people were walking on oil. Many of the black people who got land allotments in that period of time ended up with oil on those lands, and they were making money as well. So Black Wall Street came into existence basically in 1906 through a guy by the name of O.W. Gorley, who was born in uh, Alabama, raised in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He became the guy that supposedly bought the first 40 acres. That is being debated now because that's what history does. History shines a light and we find things that we didn't know before. But historically, this is what we've always said, that O.W. Garley purchased the first 40 acres that became the land, the centerpiece that would eventually become Black Wall Street. But then there was... Uh, J.B. Stratford, who was born a slave in in, uh, Kentucky, Mr. Stratford and O.W. Gorley and John Hope Franklin, not John Hope Franklin, but his father, B.C. Franklin, all of these people became futurists. They were thinkers. They were extravagant believers in themselves. I mean, and and all of a sudden, by 1920, you have this place that is called the Negro Wall Street of America by George Washington Carver which was later deemed Black Wall Street. They had, and, and the one thing that, it, I can't tell you the whole story. I just gave this talk at, at ASU Monday. I mean, Tuesday, I'm sorry, the 1st of February. But Black Wall Street is a story that goes from antiquity to 1921. Because the cultural mindset of Black people did not get lost in the fields of the Mississippi Downtown. Why? Because we had built the Pyramids of Africa. We had done that. We had done that. And there was the country of Malai, these great nations that we had built. There was the 25th dynasty of black pharaohs that had connected both Upper and Lower Egypt. These were not wishful thinking things. These were real things. And, 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 And there are publications today. The National Geographic has great stories on the 25th dynasty of black pharaohs. The Smithsonian Institute came out in 2020, the story of the magnificent kingdom of Kush, where the uh, Egyptologists who discovered the kingdom of Kush were so amazed at what he found. He said no one of Negroid ancestry could have done this because he was a victim of his time. But mm-hmm. 2020, the Smithsonian comes out with this incredible story, the cover story, the magnificent kingdom of Kush. So what am I saying? Is that yes, five million people walked out of slavery. But 5 million people had a cultural DNA that no one had taken away. It was not strange for them to build cities. It was not strange for them to start universities. Do you know Timbuktu had 87 universities? Mm. Not just one, yeah. but 87. So it wasn't strange for them yeah. to build colleges. It yeah. wasn't strange for them to build hospitals. It wasn't strange for them to have the foresight to build a town where they knew the railroad was going. It wasn't strange for them to petition to buy. Do you know the name Jefferson Davis? That was the president of the Confederacy. But most people do not know the story of his brother, Joseph Davis, who is incredibly wealthy. But his wealth was maintained and managed to a great extent by a black man by the name of Benjamin Montgomery and his son, Isaiah Montgomery. Benjamin Montgomery, at 1865, when everything was over, slavery had ended, he was able to purchase from Joseph Davis the plantations upon which he had been a slave. For $300,000, paid part of it in cash and carried a note, and grew some of the finest cotton that had ever been grown in the state of Mississippi. And he was one of the few black people that could buy and sell cotton on in Memphis and in New Orleans. These were the ports where the cotton was being sold. But at the same time, when he died, his son Isaiah said, I got to take my dad's dream to fruition. And that's when they bought land from the railroads, carved out a world of their own called Mount Bayou, Mississippi. So it wasn't strange for Black Wall Street to exist because that's the cultural DNA of a people. Just because you took them out from the land of Africa, they did, you did not take the land of Africa. Out of them. Out of them. So it was not strange, for by 1921, before that Grace Massacre, that you would have a place that black people had gathered literally from throughout the United States. They had come to this place and they had staked their claim. And they, had, do you know that there was a guy by the name of Mr. Berry who from Grenada, Mississippi who had an airline charter service on Black Wall Street?
0: So
1: first of all, who taught him how to fly?
0: See, this is this is why I got I told everyone that that he knows a thing or two about this topic, and I I encourage everyone to to reach out to Clifton and bring him on, bring him in. Read his books, bring him in, talk to him. You are a phenomenal individual. Sorry, I can, I'm not going to talk to you. Talk like you're not here, but you, you, know, you know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> but I, I know we're, we're starting to run up against time, and you probably need to go talk to the president of some country sometime. Um, so I want to open the floor back up to you. Is there, is there any anything you'd like to share in our, in, our, in our time as we come to a close? Yes, there's one gift we have. Every human being does.
1: Whether we use it or not, that's the issue. I wrote a book called Eight Habits of the Heart. It is now on every continent in the world. If you have community and you open that gift box, the eight habits will fall out. This is what brings about sustainability within our lives. It is the eight habits being lived out on a daily basis. This is why Black Wall Street existed, because they had no problems working together. They had no problems embracing these habits, nurturing attitude, responsibility, dependability, friendship, brotherhood, sisterhood, high expectations, courage, and hope. These are the habits to embrace in order to build the foundation that brings about the sustainability of your vision and your mission. As long as people are part of the process, then we have to build community in order to maximize their potential.
0: Amen. 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 Everyone, I I, I know. I, I if if you're here with me right now, I know you're feeling type of way. And and if you're feeling type of way, I want you to do one thing. I want you to share with someone else. You know what I'm about to go. You know what I'm about to say. If you. If you found anything of value anything that that set on your heart is going to make you do something different or you said make you say oh wow i didn't realize this someone else needs to hear this well yeah let someone else hear this right don't just look back reach back share this information with at least one person a friend a colleague a family member and let them be moved by this conversation just as you were um i want to stop here again and say thank you so much mr clifton for coming i I always enjoy your time. I'm I'm so glad that you allowed us to have this conversation in in, in a space where more people can be, uh, can be elevated by your thoughts, ideas, and and, and all those things that you share. Um, Look, there's nothing else to say, but I hope that you all will listen to our next episode. As always, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya. Thank you, sir. My pleasure to be with you.
1: Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.